0: Education, The podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney and my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, will soon be available as an audiobook. You can download over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd. On this week's podcast, I bring you the fourth and final interview in a series of interviews with personnel from the Albemarle School System in Charlottesville in the US state of Virginia. You have previously heard interviews with fellow podcaster Darren Ralston, with school librarian Ita Mae Pradock, and with Tony Award winner for Excellence in Theatre and Education, Madeline Michael. This week I bring you my interview with Pam Moran, who is the Executive Director of the Virginia School Consortium for Learning and is a former Superintendent of Albemarle County Public Schools. Irish teacher John Heffernan spent time as a technology leader in the Albemarle school system, and John introduced me to these guests. Pam Moran's career in public education began as a high school science teacher. She subsequently served as an elementary school principal, assistant superintendent for instruction and adjunct instructor in educational leadership for the University of Virginia's Curry School and the School of Continuing Education. She holds a degree in biology from Furman University and master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Virginia. You'll enjoy this week's episode if you are interested in how schools in the United States are administered in Maker Learning, in the kind of professional development that works and that does not work for teachers, and if you want to hear some thoughts on how to prepare students for the 21st century. When I began speaking to Pam, I noted that her former position of superintendent of schools is not one that we have here in Ireland, so I asked her to explain the position of superintendent in the US education context.
1: Sean, when I think about the role of superintendent in the United States, I go back to in 2012 when I was in Ireland and talking to educators across the country and when they would ask me what my, what my role was and I would tell them they had no clue what a superintendent was in the context of schools. In the United States, schools are organized in districts, or in Virginia, we call divisions. And that means you have multiple schools that are linked together by county lines or district lines or city lines. And those schools are administered at the building level, at the school level by principals, which are kind of like headmasters in other countries or in private schools or headmistresses. And above that, we have a centralized um, structure of people that support the schools. So you would have uh, curriculum coordinators, people that had specialty areas such as science or math or arts who would provide support to teachers in school. And support could be making sure they had the resources they need, making sure that they have professional development. Um, Right now we have uh, in this country, a lot of our math teachers use an online platform called Desmos. And um, there's a lot of professional development going on right now around virtual or online work. So that central office works with that central office, office staff in the United States also coordinate transportation, bus services for kids who need to have services to get to and from school. They will coordinate facilities, making sure that there's somebody that has oversight over custodial staff. We'll make sure that food is cooked and ready for kids during the lunch period. So all of that is a central function in a district. And a district could have literally as few as two or three schools or as many as 100 plus. And we have super large districts in the United States that may have 180,000 kids in it. Some of our big giant systems. Superintendents are over all of that inside a district. So at the top of the, uh, the hierarchy is the job called superintendent. And the superintendent makes sure that budget's in place for all the schools that, that he or she oversees, make sure that all of the operational work like transportation or food services or building services is in place to support schools, make sure that, that schools have that support around professional development or curriculum work that they're doing. Now, what's interesting is that that superintendent is working with a board like a school board who are oftentimes in the United States elected to those jobs. And so the superintendent is the main administrator working with a board that's elected from lay people in the community, typically, and making sure that the function of the school's is supported by the board and that there's oversight in place for all of the schools. Now, above that group is oftentimes in a state like Virginia, which is not too different in geographic size from Ireland. We would have a Department of Education similarly to what you have in terms of a, a department in, at the, uh, the national level that makes sure that services are in place for kids. One of the things that we learned that was really different when we were in Ireland from the United States is we have a really robust special education program for kids with disabilities, could be physical disabilities, could be cognitive disabilities, could be things like ADHD, hyperactivity disorder. And so our special education department is both uh, there's laws from the federal government in Washington. There are um, regulations at the state level. And then at the local level, we provide special education services in every school intensively. And at the state level, the Department of Education basically makes policy for the whole state. They would, um, they would, uh, enact any laws that that our General Assembly put in place, our legally um, elected representatives, if they make education laws, the State Board of Education is responsible for being sure those things get done in every school across the entire state. So it's uh, really what I would call a centrally controlled district at the local level, but there are... um, there's oversight and regulations at the state level that governs everybody. But the thing that I think is most interesting in the school where I school district where I was superintendent or division as we call them in Virginia, I was the superintendent for 26 schools, 726 square miles, and I had 16 elementary schools, five middle schools and four high schools. Um, Our high schools ranged from a small alternative high school that had about 100 kids up to a large comprehensive high school, which is where John Heffernan worked, that had 2,000 kids. So a real range of sizes. We had elementary schools with 150 kids and elementary kids, elementary schools with 700 plus kids. Um, I saw that kind of diversity in Ireland because when I was in Dublin, I would see very large elementary schools. I saw um, uh, similar kinds of, of challenges around uh, immigrant children coming in who needed to learn to speak English. And in Ireland, they were learning not just English, but also Irish, <laughs> which was kind of cool to watch. So,
0: so did you find that your role then, did it largely involve around administration, around policy or practice? Where How did you balance the different aspects of the role?
1: Superintendents are trained as administrators, high-level administrators, almost like if you were looking in the private sector, you know, a superintendent, you know, I had a budget of over $200 million. So, you know, you you have to provide a lot of focus when you're working with budgets that big. One year in 2009, 10, when everybody suffered with the Great Recession, including Ireland. But in my budget, I had to cut $10 million out of a budget in a very short period of time um, because of the recession. And that was, you know, that's the kind of thing that a superintendent's expected to do um, in this country. The other thing is that we do enact policy at the local level. Um, In the United States, there is a process for identifying kids for gifted programs. So if we had a policy that we needed to build around that or to update, I had to make sure that was happening and that it was happening. And then it would go to the board, the school board, which we had seven lay people that served on that board from all over our community. Those seven lay people would entertain feedback from the full community, from teachers, and would then make that policy, they would take a vote and it would become a part of our policy. So I dealt with policy, I dealt with practice because if um, we were in our instruction department, if we were getting ready to take on something like, and there are two examples from the period of time I was there, one is when we started moving towards trying to integrate more STEM work into the schools, One of the things that I tried to do was to make sure that we had professional development, curriculum um, support, professional development support, financial support for new equipment when we started buying things like 3D printers and, you know, all of the things that that you might use in a STEM program or STEM labs, that, that part of my job was to make sure that there was a systemic support to implement that. And so we had about 4,000 high school students. We had about 3,000 middle school students, and then the rest were in elementary school. I would spend a lot of time in schools talking to principals, visiting with teachers. I never forget when I started getting asked, because we went after maker education work, I would get asked, would you buy sewing machines for our uh, library, Pam, or we want to set up a center where kids can work with tools like Arduinos. Um, and so in the library, and so that kind of changed the way we spent money. And one of the things that I would have to do would be to work with staff to be sure we were responding to what teachers needed. So it's much more of a centralized um, setting where schools work together. Our 16 elementary principals would meet every month, they would um, work on things together. So if we were doing assessment, let's say we were making a change in assessment, those principles would work together so that everybody wasn't doing just what they wanted to do, but there was some management to be sure that if we had a good practice to implement, that they were working together to implement it everywhere. And so it's a little different, I think, than what I saw in Ireland. And I think there are advantages to both.
0: Sure. And one of the things you mentioned there was maker learning. And maybe we'll move on to that now. So what exactly is maker learning?
1: We very quickly started following the work of the maker movement in the United States, which started to spread worldwide pretty quickly, somewhere around 2007 to 2010. And um, one of the authors, co-authors of our book, Timeless Learning, um, Chad Ratliff, and then Ira Sokol both felt like that we needed to get kids more engaged in learning to use tools to make things that either A, they wanted to learn to make, or that could help them learn content, or could um, just be something that they really had an interest in learning how to do. With all the focus in the United States, and this was really different than in Ireland, on standardized testing, starting with very young children, and then doing intervention and remediation to help um, make up gaps that kids had. So if you were a poor reader, you got pulled out of other classes to work on reading. Um, So you might not take art, you might end up doing extra reading time instead of extra art time that we started talking about the impact that was having on our kids who were not learning to use tools, who were not learning to apply what they were learning to take these multiple choice tests. I'll never forget an educator in, um, I'm trying to think, it was somewhere near Tipperary, was a secondary school. So um, the kids there were, I think, about to do their um, leaving certs. And of course that's kind of an essay based test, right? And so I was explaining to her, our kids don't do that. What they do is they take multiple choice tests where there's you know, four answers, one of them's right and it's all machine scored. And she thought that was terrible. She said, how would you ever really know how kids are thinking about responses? It was kind of fascinating. And at the time, I believe that one of the questions that had just been published in the, in the papers there Because that was the other thing that's fascinating is that you guys actually publish the things that kids are supposed to do. And then people spend time arguing about what the answer really was. And so one of the questions that was being discussed there during that period of time when we were there was around a question where kids were asked to explain something like this. How did the geography of countries affect the way that the European Union was blah, 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 blah. And so they had to respond to this question. And Ira and I were saying, if our kids were asked to do that, they would be, they would, for the most part, have no clue how to start on a question like that because they're so used to what we call selected response questions. But the, the bottom line is, we felt that that kind of testing for federal purposes in the United States, what was called No Child Left Behind at the time, Um, That was a federal act that said every school had to have 100% proficiency in all kids by, I want to say, 2010. Well, the whole nation basically failed at it, and so they threw it out. But the thing that was pretty interesting is that during that period of time and even before, opportunities for kids to learn skills using tools had been wiped out of schools arts were being taken out of schools, shop class, things where kids learned how to cook and sew and do things like that had all been wiped out of public education in America. And we started putting that back in when the maker movement came about because we felt like that disengagement of our kids was a huge issue. Um, Kids that really didn't wanna be in class, they didn't feel motivated um, by the work that they were doing. And so we started introducing opportunities and bringing labs back in. We set up mechatronics labs, which kind of combined the old concept of shop class with um, a focus on being able to use more contemporary tools like 3D printers and laser cutters and things like that. What we found is that it was an immediate support from both our parent community felt like this was great that we were doing this. Their kids were coming home, you know, working on projects that they were really excited about. Teachers in math could find connections from learning math theoretically to actually using math in some of the, the things that kids were making. And then we also found that when teachers would add into it, something that might challenge a child to use making to solve a problem in their own life or somebody else's life that you started to also see um, more empathy-based learning coming into play and I'll never forget walking into a fourth grade classroom and the kids had been challenged to make something for someone else so they were having to interview people they were having to find out what a problem was that somebody was facing And then to come up with a making solution. And this one little guy had interviewed his grandmother who told him that she was always losing her cell phone because she used a cane. And so she would go around the house using her cane. She only had one hand for her phone so she'd lay her phone down and lose it. And this little guy designed a Velcro pouch that could attach to a cane so she could put her phone in the pouch and then use her cane and not lose her phone. And I just thought, you know, It's about invention, it's about kids having fun, it's about them doing something for somebody other than themselves, and using a lot of really good skill sets, whether it's math, whether it's thinking scientifically, whether it's communication skills, that we really saw that as something that was of value. And that has continued to be a part of the system, even though I've been out of it for a couple of years. But we started that process in about 2010, and it's continued on. So what we really found was that the more that we engaged in maker work, it really started to bring our school communities together with PR. You know, we, we had kids doing amazing projects. We had kids in um, one of our schools, middle schools who decided they wanted to um, design their redesign their cafeteria. And they ended up making two 14 foot, rolling tree houses that lived in their their uh, cafeteria. Um, and one of the things that happened as a result of it is the teachers really discovered that there were kids that were struggling with things like fractions or proportional reasoning, that when they were working on that project with a hands-on experience, that those things started making sense to them. So I used to say that making makes helps kids make sense of learning in ways that just doing it on a piece of paper or talking about it just doesn't do for kids. So I would say that our division became one of the places in the United States where people really look to us to find out what is this thing called maker work and how do we make it happen? Madeline Michael, we used to laugh and say that her drama program was one of our original maker spaces because the kids designed and made the sets They uh, took care of the music. They did the choreography. um, They even wrote the plays. And so we would say that's what a true maker, an arts maker environment can look like.
0: My knowledge of shop courses comes from a U.S. movie called Stand By Me. And in that one, the youngsters, they're quite disparaging about the shop courses. And they say that it's kind of for people who who aren't working or who, who aren't academic. And I just wonder, is there a risk with the maker movement of creating a two-tier school system where some people are directed towards making as opposed to others who go down a more intellectual track?
1: We found that making was as relevant in our high-end engineering programs as it was in um, any any area of the school. And actually, we found that um, particularly in in times when kids could choose to use a maker space, you would have kids that were, kids going, that were literally were going to go to MIT working side by side with a kid that was probably going to start a small business or go to work in some construction field after graduation. And oftentimes what we found is that that kid who was taking calculus in high school and accruing college credits actually could learn some things from the kid that was really good with their hands building things and then vice versa. And so we used it to really the maker work that that we found to really represent some of our best work was when you had diverse kids working together on projects and able to really share their competencies and strengths in the project work. An example that we had that I think is one of the best ones is that in one of our STEM programs in our high school, there was a group of kids that decided to enter a competition to build an autonomous sailboat that was a competition put on by Olin College of uh, Engineering. And these kids were really diverse, all really capable. None of them had ever sailed They'd never sailed a sailboat before, but they figured out how to program their sailboat using all kinds of data inputs around um, wind and tides and this and so forth and so on. And when they took their sailboat to the competition, they ended up beating college teams from Canada and the United States that were engineering teams And these kids had never put a boat in the water themselves before, but they were able to make this autonomous sailboat and figure out the mathematics. So some of the kids were really good at the hands-on side of building the boat. The others were really good at programming. And when they came together around it, they all were learning in a maker environment how to to really put put that all together. It was pretty remarkable to watch. And I just think, quite frankly, Sean, one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about all of our kids in middle school getting the opportunity to work in maker environments is that too many kids in their own homes have grown up not learning how to use tools and just the most simple repairs. They need to call somebody to come do it for them. They need to put up a shelf or they have a problem with um, the plumbing that could be easily fixed. Um, They, you know, they didn't know how to use drills or saws or hammers, because we'd taken all that out. And they had basically not learned any of that in their own homes. So I said that that one thing that would come out of this is that more kids would be able to accomplish repairs, and do things that they wanted to do or needed to do in their own homes as adults, as a result of getting them back in touch with uh, tools and We even had little kids, our little kids, first graders, kindergartners, learned how to use um, drills and saws and hammers. And were doing all kinds of cool projects around um, things that they wanted to make or that they were making as part of class. So we said, making to learn and learning to make are both equally important and it should be a part of what we do. Not the only thing, but a part of the overall schema of things that kids need to learn in order to be successful in life, not just to uh, pass tests, if that makes sense.
0: When you mentioned first graders using drills, that makes me think straight away, health and safety, was that raised as a problem? And also what kind of professional development do teachers need in order to incorporate more, more maker approaches in their teaching?
1: We always really focused on safety, you know, that if, if we were going to introduce tools to kids that the teacher really knew how to use the tools, that safety equipment, goggles and um, designated areas, like we would tape off areas where you could use certain tools. And then we would say, you have to be able to demonstrate you can use this tool before we're gonna turn you loose with it. It wasn't just go in and start using the tools. You actually had to learn how to do it. Whether it was something like a, uh, a hot glue gun, which could be pretty dangerous, or whether it was a a drill or a saw. And one of my favorite pictures that I show people when I'm doing presentations is of a third grader who was using a chop saw and he was making a giant Jenga game set for his kindergarten teacher. And when I walked up to him and I said, so don't you think you need to have an adult right here with you? And he said, I don't know why I'm the expert here. And he truly was, he had on his goggles, he was measuring and, um, you know, it was a perfect example of how kids, when you make sure they have the tools, that they have the skills, and you trust them, will really come up with some things to do that are pretty extraordinary. And what we did in that case is that we actually had that maker space we put in in a summer, we put it into a local fire company's sort of community hall. And so the kids were going to the fire station in a rural area where they could work together. And then they got to have mentors who were there that were adults that would normally you know, not come into a school in the summer to do volunteer work. And so it kind of built some community spirit around what the kids were doing. And one of the things that, that we also learned is that there were a lot of older generation parents, dads and moms and grandparents who themselves had skills like being able to sew and just really appreciated the chance to get their grandchildren or somebody's grandchildren involved in learning how to do some things that they perceived as real weaknesses in today's kids that they don't know how to do anything. All they, need, all they know how to do is play video games. You know, It's nice to see them learning how to sew or use drills or to build a, build a, a box or a bookcase for their bedroom because it gets them off of those devices. Now, we love the devices too. We said both are equally important. One's not better than the other. And in this day and age, we think our kids probably need to learn both.
0: When you think of the curriculum, how was the maker learning reflected in the curriculum? I mean, because you've touched on a number of different subjects that it seems to have cut across.
1: well, what we what we started doing was really uh, running professional development. We ran programs in the summer where teachers could come in who didn't have experience with maker um, tools, and they would come in and work with teachers that did and work with kids around curricular content. So it could be science, it could be math, it could be social, studies, it could be language arts. But one of the things that we tried to do was to look at maker work as a pedagogy, as a strategy for engaging kids in learning, but the content was still important. So if kids needed to learn how to measure and convert fractions, that's something you can do on paper or you can do it on a computer. But if a kid's really going to learn it well, then let them do something that actually involves like, you know, one school I went down and. The kids were were all um, working on making bird feeders in science and in math. And they were, you know, cutting the wood and, you know, putting the bird feeders together. And so they were learning about, you know, um, biology. They were learning about um, uh, fractions in terms of measurement. And they were learning how to do something that they were going to give. I think that they were going to take those bird feeders to a... uh, nursing home and try to see if they could put them near windows so that uh, residents of the nursing home would be able to watch the birds. So it was kind of a, a, you know, built um, knowledge, built skills, but also built empathy in that project. So we did um, institutes in the summer. We would offer sessions during the school year. We would invite teachers to visit maker spaces and observe and our instructional coaches also helped us. We have, what we, call instruct- we have what we call instructional coaches who worked with teachers to help them implement um, pedagogical practices that were maybe different, like project-based learning. They would see opportunities. For example, we had um, a guy that was teaching trigonometry in high school and um. The, uh, the instructional coach for that school introduced him to the idea of what if kids made things such as airplanes or submarines that actually could work and they were able to really apply some of their trig skills in uh, creating those and then looking at things like uh, trajectory or, you know, movement in space as part of what they were, where they were applying some skills from trig with the things that they were making. We had a language arts teacher in seventh grade who kids would, when they would read a novel, she would give them the opportunity to choose something from the novel that metaphorically represented a character or a theme in the novel. And the kids might 3D print something that would be representative And then they would um, use that as a centerpiece to writing that they would do or, or discussions that they would do around the book that they had read. As much as anything to get kids engaged, that's for us probably the most important thing that we were ever doing was focusing on who are the kids that when they come to school are not paying attention, are skipping school, walking out of class. Um, Even if they're doing well in school, they're really disinterested. And how do we come up with strategy, with pedagogical strategies that really engage kids? And so that was really what we were always after is how do we really see what kids are interested in, what their strengths are, and then try to apply that through curriculum so that kids are getting chances to work on things that they're really motivated around. And so it's not a cookie cutter approach where everybody in the room is doing the same thing all the time
0: what kind of professional development do you find is most helpful for teachers
1: i think that that what i believe is that professional development that's as close to the classroom as possible is what works it's teachers and boy have we seen it during the pandemic teachers want just in time professional development that helps them solve a problem or address a challenge that otherwise they would not know how to get there. What we tried to do, our instructional coaching model really was set up. And then the position that John Heffernan was in, a learning tech integrator, they worked directly with teachers. Professional development wasn't sit and get, go sit in the cafeteria and have somebody PowerPoint you to death. Our version of professional development that we found most helpful was when teachers were learning skills as close to the classroom as possible, getting people to help them implement it, could be helping to model it, to, um, to, uh, to provide feedback on how things were going, to look for the things the teacher wanted to get feedback on and to give them feedback and help them find resources that would move them to a different place in terms of their work with kids. What I have found over the years is that the worst case for professional development is when a teacher goes to a session and it's a one-time event, somebody talks at them for two hours or three hours or all day long and they go back to class the next day and nothing sticks, stays with them or ever gets used from it. Even if they were excited about it. If we had professional development work um, and a lot of ours was taught by our teachers for their peers Our goal was when that teacher went back to the classroom, they would have somebody there, an instructional coach or a learning tech integrator who was going to help them implement what we were were, um, um, setting up for them to learn. And so that was really critical. So if it was a reading strategy, you had an instructional coach that would work with it. If it was a tech platform like Flipgrid, you had a technology Uh, integrator who was going to help them figure out how do I use this tool with kids so and I'll tell you the job that I'm in right now I do some consulting work but I also um, am executive director of the Virginia School Consortium for Learning which is 78 school districts in Virginia um, large districts and small districts one of the things that that we did in the spring as soon as the pandemic hit is that we brought in a young guy, in fact, um, from Albemarle, who had incredible skills in helping teachers learn how to move into a virtual learning environment. And we taught close to 7,000 educators, not just from Virginia, but from all over the world. And we just made it free in sessions starting in April that ran through August. And the reality is what we were trying to do was to help teachers not just learn how to use a tool like Flipgrid, but to figure out how does this tool help kids get choices? How does it engage kids? How do you tie it to your content that you are using? And one of the things that was really delightful was hearing an elementary um, teacher. So she would have, she was third grade, so she would have predominantly eight-year-olds talk about having kids read passages at home from a book that they chose, having the child um, record it on a Flipgrid video, and then the teacher could listen to the child read and then give the child feedback and help the child um, if they saw that there was a place where they could work on a comprehension strategy with the child or a fluency strategy. So teachers learning how not just that the tool is a tool But how do you apply that tool in real learning settings? And when teachers get that, I think that that's really the professional development that sticks. So that helps.
0: What is Flipgrid?
1: Flipgrid is a tool used in the United States. If you look it up, it's at flipgrid.com. And Flipgrid is pretty remarkable because it started out as a way for people to be able to make videos around anything and post them so if you had a class and you asked the class a question um, that you wanted them to work on like if you said i want you to um write something at home and then record it and then anybody in class can listen to it or just the teacher can listen to it but what they've actually done is over this period of the pandemic is to really develop out how do you use flipgrid as part of bigger units in instruction. And so definitely go look at it. I think you'd be able to get to it there because I think it's used internationally now, but it's a great tool. And one that when teachers learn how to use a tool like that, it's applicable. You can use it face-to-face or you can use it virtually. But the most important thing is that kids get really excited and like to use it. And it can uh, create all kinds of synergy around project work or, Things that just that kids need to be able to do in school. So it's pretty cool.
0: One of the things that you have been concerned about throughout your career is preparing students for the 21st century. And, you know, there's various quotes that you have on the record about it. But what do schools need to do to be more relevant for today's students' lives?
1: Think about this, Sean. The kids that are are five-year-olds coming into our schools today are likely going to live into the 22nd century. And, you know, there are people that believe that the life expectancy of kids probably by the time they hit 85 is going to look more like 105 or 110 years of age. And and we know that jobs are going to get eliminated because we're all seeing it in the United States. You know, you go into a grocery store that used to have 10 cash registers with people and now you've got three and lots of self checkouts. We know that automation is everywhere. And one of the things that that has caught my attention is that a lot of companies and even small businesses have learned through the pandemic what jobs maybe they had not thought that they could eliminate or outsource or reduce um, workloads, um, cut contracts, whatever, um, have learned during the pandemic how to get efficiencies as a result of automation that otherwise they would maybe not have seen yet. But it kind of pushed the whole world into a very different place in terms of the workforce. My kid who works in media lives in New York City and he hasn't been in his office since early March and likely won't be back until maybe next year. And so, you know, one of the things that, that he would say is that the people that run the company are probably saying, you know, we don't need all this space because we can have these guys live in their houses and work. And then we can cut our overhead by not having as much uh, square footage that we need for people to be able to work together. So there's a lot of things like that that are coming at us. There are demographic changes too. There's climate change. There's just a lot of things that our kids are gonna face in this century. And one of the things that that I really believe is that schools use a curriculum in general in this country that was written um, around the, the turn of the, the 20th century in the early 1900s. And it has been added to and added to and added to in terms of content, much of which you don't need for life. And I, I'm a, a liberal arts kid. I grew up and went to a liberal arts at, you know, college. And so I love you know, kids learning humanities, learning math, learning science. But I also know that our kids, that the testing culture in this country put kids, teachers in a place where kids never really learned anything deeply. They learned a lot of things superficially. And we all know from memory research that a lot of that superficial learning doesn't stick. And so we spend a lot of time in schools on things that there's no, that that kids aren't even going to remember. And so I have a real belief system that if we were to really cut the content down to things that kids are, we believe as adults are important for kids to learn and that we can spend the time on those things so that it becomes interesting to kids and they can really learn it deeply we would probably be educating kids up for this century far better than we're doing right now so people would say well if you did that what about the what about all the time that you have left because now you're not teaching all this content And I've been working with a guy here in the United States who has worked in the business world for years in corporations and teaches in um, the University of Virginia Business School, Ed Hess. And he's written some really important books that are grounded in learning over the last several years. The first one that caught my attention was the book Learn or Die, and it was about the idea that. If you're working in any corporation today, any business today, if you're not continuing to learn across your career, your business or your corporation will likely go out of business because you can't maintain the status quo as a learner in a corporation.
0: But that could be quite different. Learning in a corporation could be quite different to learning in a school. So if you go back to that early 1900s curriculum, what would you remove and what would you keep?
1: Well, for example, I think that the math curriculum has become so bloated in this country that American kids, American adults, and it's very obvious when you watch people who cannot process any of the data that has (laughs) emerged, data that have emerged um, around um, politics, elections, climate change, you name it. We have a very illiterate population when it comes to actually having people who can think mathematically, uh, have data literacy, understand statistics, things that are, are really important in our lives that we're able to do. And I believe that's because we have such a bloated curriculum that it's become a kitchen drawer of every kind of math possible. And so kids sample across the universe of everything you might want people to know in math if you're a math teacher. But the reality is that kids don't learn it really well. So one of the first things I'd probably do is to go in and really reduce the math curriculum down significantly. And I would put people together who really understand What are the things that if a kid is truly planning to go into a science field, a medical field, a STEM field, what they need in math is going to look really different than a kid that's going into humanities or small business. So I would probably backward map and build curriculum around where we think kids likely are going to land at the high school level. But middle school for me, which is kind of our ages 11 to 14, would be very experiential math. How do you use math in your world? Um, And I would have kids doing a lot of work around that um, in terms of um, whether it's geometry or algebra, which, you know, most people see absolutely no use for algebra. But, you know, you use algebra all the time in your life because algebra for the most part is about you know, does A equal B? Now, you know it's much more sophisticated than that. But a lot of people never think about that. Life is about balancing everything, whether it's your budget in your home, whether it's um, um, thinking about politics. You know that uh, that there's a lot of math that can be applied all over the world, but most people never make a connection between most math that they learn or maths, as you guys say. And uh, the world around them, they just don't see it. That's one of the things that I do. And then at the elementary level, again, it would be a very hands-on experience around math, very much in an application of math. But I would keep it focused on what are the things that really number and number sense? What are the kinds of things that absolutely kids need to ground them in mathematical thinking so that when they move up, that you're constantly scaffolding skill sets that lead you at some point out into the career that you plan to, to really go after. You know, I think that we put a lot more emphasis on math that most kids will never use. And And
0: other subjects apart from mathematics,
1: I would probably look at science in a more integrated way that rather than teaching biology or chemistry or physics or earth science or ecology is all separate. I would really look at how do you start to integrate those content areas together and look at what are the kinds of things that if kids were able to get good deep experiences in this, that would have them have a much better understanding of how science plays out in their own world around them um, and really get kids much more focused on the powers of observation inquiry and experimentation. So I would play more with that in science. Um, But the other thing is, is that I think that this concept that we've always had, that you teach math separate from science, separate from language arts, separate from history, um, is a little crazy in that um, it takes a lot of the day for you to get through that, that if teachers were really working more as teams, that you would find that kids would see the connections across curriculum a lot better. But then the other thing that I think that Sean um, is absolutely critical. And so I'm gonna go back to my Ed Hess story. So first book he wrote that caught my attention was Learn or Die. And I thought, okay. He says, if we don't remain sustain ourselves as lifelong learners, whether you're a five-year-old growing up or you're a 35-year-old heading towards um, middle age or you're a, a senior citizen, that as soon as you you Realize that you can just stop learning. You don't have to learn anything new. You start losing your brain's capacity to make connections and continue to scaffold new information in your your life. The next thing that he talked about was, and I thought this was fascinating. The next title of of the book that he rolled out was Humility is the New Smart. Kind of a fascinating topic. And in it, he started talking about What is it that humans do that allow them to be able to continue to find success in their homes, their communities, in the workforce, and the idea of that humility is a a space that when you occupy that, it gives you insight into the world that you don't have when you have a big ego because you don't see the world if you have a big ego. And so he wrote that book next. The third one he's written that I'm most interested in, and he and I were just talking with a a real thought opinion leader in the United States, Tom Vander Ark, who was a former school superintendent, but ran um, the Gates Foundation's First Education Foundation. And so, Tom and Ed and I were talking recently about Ed's new book, which is called Hyper Learning Learning at the Speed of Change. And one of the things that Ed talks about in that is that the most centering piece of what humans have to learn in order to be successful moving into this next century is they have to learn how to have relationships with other people. That if we were, we're refocusing, reimagining school, What would it look like if we had a relationships-based curriculum? What if we had a creative-based curriculum where kids were really encouraged to be creative thinkers and doers in the work that they do? And how do kids really begin to um, understand that it's our internal biases that oftentimes are cultural that keep us from building communities that really thrive? So his focus now, and I think this is pretty interesting, is that the skill sets that will help people thrive in the coming decades are really going to be around creativity relationships. What are the things that humans do well that machines can't do well? And that's where the jobs are gonna be. He said, if, if a machine already has the data, then you're not needed. And so it's kind of an interesting philosophy. And so I think about it through that lens of that communities are changing, the world's changing, the workforce is changing. How is it that we get back to the essence of who we are as humans and how humans learn well and really refocus on not a a 19th or 20th century curriculum, but what would be a curriculum that would be grounded in how humans learn well that provides kids with the experiences and opportunities they need that's going to help them be adaptable, flexible, um, capable of of, uh, shifting and evolving who they are and what they do over time, and yet stay true to what makes human communities work well. And those are things that are about relationships, about kindness, about caring, about working with other people collaboratively, learning with and from each other, offering what you have to other people. The United States has always been much more of an of a individualist culture in many areas of the country, not everywhere. And that is a different driver, but we don't think that, that an individualist culture is going to help people thrive in this next coming these coming decades because people have to learn to work together, Whether it's around climate change, whether it's around geopolitical disruptions that occur, whether it's around technology taking over our lives, how is it that we work in a more collaborative way to um, affect solutions that benefit us all? versus benefiting individuals.
0: You yourself are co-author of a book called Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. What is that book about? And can you explain some of those terms like zero-based thinking?
1: Ira and Chad Ratliff and I wrote that book together. And so Timeless Learning came out of Lots of conversations and work that the three of us were doing with educators all over Albemarle to really go after how, would, how do we engage kids? How do we develop a real love of learning in kids? How do we get more kids who are disengaged, disenfranchised, and marginalized from learning to become a, to feel like that, that the culture of school that they're in is one where they are valued and can be successful and have a lot of opportunities um, that um, sometimes they would not have had otherwise. What we started talking about is that voice agency and influence are gifts for life because if you're a person who believes your voice matters, you're probably going to be involved civically and community-wise and um, really be willing to stand up for things that you believe in. If you believe that you have agency, that you own your own learning, you're not going to be dependent on somebody else to tell you what to do to be a learner. And if you have influence, you start to to find out that things can change as a result of you putting energy towards it. And so when we started putting that together around a lot of projects in the system, what emerged for us is that there were three things that educators were doing that were critical to changing the way the system works. So As teachers became better observers of kids, what they started to do was to really learn how children are different and how they could be responsive to children who represent a lot of different strengths in who they are and also different interests. Imagination. One of the things that we started doing was encouraging people to generate ideas or to think about solutions to challenges that um, were ones that that could not be solved with traditional learning um, uh, responses. What we found is that the more that we ignited kids in terms of their excitement, interest, passion, fun, joy, in learning, the more engaged that kids became. And so that became a pathway for teachers to think about how do I create contagious creativity in a classroom?
0: The the zero-based thinking, what is that? All
1: right, so zero-based thinking is how do you design from scratch? You know, educators too often around schedule or grading systems, assessment or testing, we do what we've always done. And so we started encouraging what we call zero-based thinking, which is if you were designing school from scratch, what would you do differently than what you're doing right now? And so one of the things that we brought back from Ireland that had some influence when we started working with our elementary educators is we started redesigning in the United States, you know, everything is age based, you know, five-year-olds are in kindergarten and six-year-olds are in first grade and so forth. But there were two, um, you'll, you'll find this, you'll probably laugh at this and go, well, Pam, you just happened to run into the right people. That we asked a, um, a teacher in one of the, the primary schools that we're, we're in, if she wouldn't prefer to have all five-year-olds together And she said, if I did that, how would the five-year-olds learn to be six if I only had five-year-olds? And then a parent in another school, when we said, wouldn't you rather have your child in a room with all eight-year-olds? And she said, if he was only with eight-year-olds, how would he ever learn to take care of the wee ones or something like that? And so one of the things we started thinking about is that the systems that we have in the United States or systems that we created, but it's not the way the world works. Other people do things differently. And so we started thinking about what does it, what when you take away age-based grade levels, what do you get? And what you get is really a more natural community. You get opportunities for kids to be able to work with each other, um, younger and older, um, in really positive ways, you get kids um, who you know can play up or play down. If you need a little extra help, you can hang with the, the seven year olds. If you need, you know, if you're doing really well, you can kind of play up with the uh, the a little bit older groups of kids. And so we started building out multi age spaces all over the county, and that was one of the things that we described as a zero based thinking piece because. We went back to the drawing board and said, what would it look like if we were um, doing this? How would we need to change the school? One of the things that came up is that um, in the United States, at recess, only five-year-olds go out and play with each other. So all the kindergartens go out, but they're never around kids that are in fourth grade. But when you start to go to a multi-age, you've got fourth graders and, you know, Six-year-olds, all, you know, eight-year-olds and six-year-olds playing together with seven-year-olds. And it's very much the way families work. It's very much the way if you go out on a weekend to a playground, it's how kids play. And so one of the things that the teacher started noticing is that when we were creating these multi-age spaces and environments is that all of a sudden their six-year-olds could do things that an eight-year-old was doing. And they were like, wow, you know, and they found like one of our teachers that was doing this said, you know, all my little boys that are eight are watching the 10 year old boys doing math. And they're like saying to us, give us harder problems. We want to do hard problems, too. And he said, so all of a sudden we had kids that were wanting to do harder work so that they could be like the big kids. Isn't that I mean, I don't know if you've if you've you've ever thought about that as a real positive thing but that was something that we went back and we said let's design elementary schools very differently and so we started putting those multi-age spaces in and it really did you know it it results in a very different culture um it can reduce bullying siblings can take care of each other and be connected like we had one little boy say to us I don't understand why I can't eat with my big brother at lunch. Well, it's because you're in first grade. All of a sudden, if you're in a school that's multi age, you're probably going to spend time with your big brother at lunch if that's important to you. And he wants that to happen.
0: We're coming near the end, Pam. And I just have a few quick questions, kind of quick fire questions, um, just to finish up. And the first one is what is school for or what are schools for?
1: I think schools are for helping people grow up in life and have what they need to thrive in their families, in their communities, um, in being able to choose work that, um, having lots of choices um, and not being limited by the school. That schools should open opportunities for kids. Um, and, you know, as I've sometimes said, we won't know our success unless we know that a 30-year-old gets to choose to do whatever it is that they believe that they want to do in life because of what we did to help educate them to be 30 and make choices. Um, but that when schools limit the opportunities and they limit kids and they look at kids through deficits versus strengths, what we do is we say, you get this path and you get this path and you get this path, but you don't get all these paths. So I think schools, schools at their best give kids multiple pathways into life and all of those pathways are open for kids and as a result of the things that we help kids develop that they get to thrive in life, And it's not just about being able to pass tests when they're in school.
0: Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you?
1: Oh, many um, teachers along the way. In fact, I'm still learning from teachers. But I would say that, that going back to my childhood, that probably the most important teacher I had was when I was in high school. And I grew up in a rural area in the state of South Carolina on a farm. And I had a teacher who was my biology teacher. She was also my chemistry teacher, my physics teacher, and my school counselor because she wore many hats. But when I was a 10th grader, she said to me, you seem to have a real affinity for science. Have you ever thought about going to college and majoring in science? I think you'd be good in some science field. And then she said, or I think you'd also be a really good teacher because you're really good at helping other people. That you, uh, that you work with in class, your, your peers. So I went to college and ended up majoring in science because of her and ended up teaching because she had put that in my head. And so I always go back and Miss Hires is in her nineties now. And I have pictures of me with her with my white hair and her white hair, just really a tribute that she was somebody that really pushed me to think about what was possible And neither one of my parents went to college. So I was a first-generation college kid in my family. And I um, probably wouldn't have maybe thought of myself as having that potential without her. And she uh, has followed me to this day.
0: Who or what inspires you?
1: I'm inspired by children that I've seen be decent people be fabulous learners and creators and be able to find themselves moving into adulthood maybe against what some people would have said. I um, have been inspired by a lot of kids over my years who really defy what people think about them in school, what teachers label them as being, in spite of the fact that their parents are not necessarily really able to give the kids what they need in their homes. And those kids that, that do that oftentimes will tell you that it's because of a teacher that's been in their lives that they have made themselves successful. And they don't, you know, these are not all kids that go to college. In fact, a lot of them just go out into the world but they become decent human beings. And they raise families and they, they love other people, they give to other people, and they have a real sense of empathy for those that have less than them. And so that's what I, I'm really aspire, inspired by kids that do that. I'm inspired by educators who keep coming back to this work, despite the fact that it's, in my mind, I always say, There's no profession, Sean, that's more important than education anywhere in the world. And yet it's a profession that oftentimes does not have the respect, at least in the United States, that teachers deserve because people tend to think if you're in education, it's because you couldn't do something else. The reality is most people that I know that chose education could have done a lot of different things in their lives. But they chose to be in education because oftentimes something about school, a teacher, some opportunity they had, had such influence on them that they wanted to pay it forward. And so they came to teaching because of that.
0: And finally, Pam, have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education?
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I uh, I love my partner, Ira Sokol, that works with me in business. He is truly a provocateur, and I love what he writes. I love Young Zhao, um, who really pushes the envelope of the way people think about what school, what's possible in school. I'll tell you somebody else I really love their writing is Catherine Cronin. Do you know Catherine?
0: Yes, she's in Galway, in NUI Galway, yeah. She's a former guest on this podcast as
1: well. I love Catherine's writing and um, the fact that Pam O'Brien and Mags Almond and Catherine and um, Catherine's sister, Mary, who's here in the United States, Cronin, um, that that group of women has, we've all stayed connected. John is you know, kind of an honorary member of that group, spending time with that group of people really opened Ira, whose mother was from the North. Her, his mother was actually grew up in Derry. She was a war, World War II bride. But Ira really introduced me to Seamus Heaney's writing. And, you know, there's so much, there's so much about education in his writing, even if you have to kind of read between the lines in it. But one of the things that I find is that it's oftentimes the poets that really speak to me about what education can be and what's possible, whether it's a Maya Angelou here or Seamus Haney there, that when young people can grow up and can be inspired through the words of poets and of writers and of people who think big lofty thoughts and big dreams and are able to express that, I think that it can catch kids' attention and cause them to become something that um, perhaps provides a deeper way of thinking about the world than you do when you just go through school trying to get the grades and to graduate and just get out. And so I'm a real believer in Kids as writers, kids as authors, and kids having a lot of opportunities to engage with literature, with poetry in ways that help them see that there's this bigger world out there. And I will tell you one of my favorite projects right now that I put up. And if you ever want to, if you ever want another interview from the United States, is um, in Newark, New Jersey. They developed a project for kids when they went home, and Newark has. It's a very urban area um, with a lot of kids living in poverty. But they developed a project called Stories from the Pandemic. And interestingly enough, it has an Irish connection because Marianne Riley is the assistant superintendent there. And she was adopted from Ireland as a baby by her parents. But um, what they've done there is these kids have created this amazing website. You can look it up, Stories from the Pandemic where kids are documenting in blogs and images and video what their lives have been like during the pandemic. And it's high school kids and college kids. It's a great project. And it just speaks to the power of what happens when kids realize that they have voice. And I think kids learn about voice by experiencing voice. That's
0: great, Pam. And thank you so much for talking to me today. And uh, if someone wants to find out more about you or about your work, where is the best place to to do that?
1: Well, I would tell you that um, the place where most people catch up with me is on Twitter. I'm just at Pam Moran, um, P-A-M-M-O-R-A-N on Twitter. Um, I also, uh, you can grab us at, Ira and I both at SokalMoran.com which is where we have a lot of our resources and contact information um, just about the work that we're doing these days with people all over the the United States um, uh, who really are interested in doing the kind of work that we did in Albemarle. I'm really excited about um, that schools could be something very different if we exercised observation Um, imagination and zero-based thinking that we can reinvent schools and people are doing it and people have done it. So those are probably the best ways.
0: And that was Dr. Pam Moran from the Virginia School Consortium for Learning and a former superintendent of the Albemarle County Public Schools in the United States, describing how you can contact her or learn more about her work. Thanks to Pam for her time in recording the interview. You can listen back to this podcast or over 400 previous episodes by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. An audio version of my popular book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, will shortly be released. If you'd like to contact me with feedback or suggestions for future podcasts, please write to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney signing off.